As the film industry gets ready to honor its very best, we take a look at this year's nominees and the stories they tell with the help of one of the best film critics working today, who's also the awards columnist for Deadline. He's Pete Hammond, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also with Salve's Pell Center. This week, we're joined by a great friend of the show. Pete Hammond is the awards columnist and chief film critic for Deadline, and our ticket to understanding this year's Academy Award nominees. He joins us from California. Pete, welcome back. Hi, happy to be back. Well, it's great to have you back on the show and to get your thoughts about this year's best films and performances. And we want to note right out of the gate that the Academy Awards will broadcast on Sunday, March 12th, 2023 at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on ABC. So we've got a, a ton of things that we want to talk to you about, so I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, before we talk about the films, though, how is the film industry doing? It seems like it was as impacted as anything uh, by the lingering effects of the pandemic. What was 2022 like uh, for Hollywood and the film industry? Well, I think one movie changed everything in terms of optimism that maybe the uh, theatrical movie-going experience would be coming back. And it, there was evidence of it just uh, recently at the Oscar nominees lunch where I was, where uh, Steven Spielberg uh, and Tom Cruise also were, and Steven Spielberg was caught on camera uh, telling Tom Cruise, you saved Hollywood and maybe the future of theatrical movies. It was quite the moment. Um, but I think a, a bit of the truth, Top Gun Maverick really showed you could bring audiences back in a big way. It became Tom Cruise's biggest movie ever, well over a billion dollars, and people kept coming back there. And then by the end of the year, Avatar, uh, The Way of Water, even topped that and uh, and proved that with the right movies and things, we could get audiences back into uh, theaters. I think that was the significant development. It's still very difficult, though, with these so-called Oscar movies, these smaller movies like Tar and Banshees of Inner Sharon and things to really get that adult audience back and keep them from, you know, maybe uh, watching these movies on their couch at home, get them back in the theater, which is what uh, this Oscar season might be able to help because people are talking about these movies now. There's curiosity, and we want people to see them, and you can see them on uh, VOD, uh, video on demand, and streamers, and different ways, um, but the theatrical experience is what Hollywood's concerned with, and they're hoping to use the Oscars now to really ramp that up uh, as we go into 2023 and get back to some sense of normalcy. I do notice though, that here in town, the Oscar season, the campaigning, everything is back in person, all the award shows and things, and there aren't so many COVID restrictions anymore on it. So there is a difference. We, we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, we hope. So, Pete, we're going to get into the specifics of the Best Picture nominations in, in just a moment. But what is your overall assessment of the field this year? 
I think considering when you talk to filmmakers, every one of these movies, uh, for the most part, had to be made under these tight restrictions of COVID production, where one person who might uh, test positive can shut down a whole production. It is a very tricky proposition for many of these movies. And on the other hand, I mentioned Top Gun. You know, Top Gun had five different release dates due to the pandemic. They kept moving it. Uh, and so there, there was those problems, too, of just getting these movies out into theaters. But uh, I definitely feel this lineup of 10 is pretty remarkable considering the mountains some of these people had to climb. And it's a, it's a varied list of the Best Picture nominations. For the first time in a long time, we have some blockbuster, audience-pleasing uh, movies in there like Avatar and Top Gun, Elvis was a very big box office hit in the summer uh, for Warner Brothers. Uh, and um, we have that. And even a movie, a smaller movie uh, from an independent like A24 called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, uh, made over $100 million and really brought uh, an audience that wasn't uh, going to movies into theaters uh, when that opened in uh, all the way back last spring and uh, has been the leading uh, film here in terms of nominations. Um, and then there are just the normal kind of really good movies from great filmmakers, I think, on the list, uh, such as uh, Martin McDonough's Banshees of Inna Sharon, uh, the return of Todd Field after 16 years uh, to filmmaking with Tar, with Kate Blanchett uh, in that movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the list is good. There's a really good film called Triangle of Sadness that I'm glad to see got in. Last May, it won the Palm d'Or at Cannes and uh, has come all the way to getting a Best Picture nomination here at the Oscars. Then there is, every now and then you get a, an international movie, a foreign language film, and we have All Quiet on the Western Front uh, in the race this year for Netflix. I don't think they were expecting this would do as well as it did at the Oscars with nine nominations. It's up for international film, but it's also up for best picture. And that's pretty remarkable uh, for this movie as well. And, you know, if that were to win, it would make Oscar history because no remake of a best picture winner has ever gone on to win. And uh, the original All Quiet on the Western Front won uh, uh, best Picture in 1930. So it's a real mixed bag, but it's an interesting thing. And hopefully it'll get an audience of ratings uh, for the Oscars this year as well. Well, let's go through some of these in a little bit more detail. So you've, you've mentioned All Quiet on the Western Front. I watched this and was, you know, I, I, I have an affinity for war films. This is a decidedly anti-war film. And it is graphic, it is violent, but it is incredibly powerful. Yes, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, for the first time, tells the story from the German point of view. So it is all in German. It comes from a director, Edward Berger, who I just um, interviewed a couple of days ago. He is uh, busy making another movie in Rome right now, so he's had little time to get to L.A., but uh, caught up with him. And, uh, you know, this movie was made for under $20 million. So you say wow. you've seen it. That's extraordinary. The, the battle scenes <laughs> alone seem like this should have been a much bigger budget than that. Huge. I said it looks like a hundred million. Yeah. Uh, and also, I thought the battle scenes were uncommonly realistic in this film. Uh, you see these fires and things on the battlefield. I haven't quite felt myself thrust in 
to the center of 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 the front lines, as it were, uh, in a long time in a, in a war movie like this. And we've seen so many war movies, not as many set in World War One as in World War Two. And this one obviously is set in World War One and is from the book, obviously the Eric Remark book. Uh, the ultimate anti-war story, but it has real resonance right now. And, and Edward Berger feels like he didn't know this when he was making the movie, that the war in Ukraine would bring the war in Europe back here and back into a situation we haven't been in in a long time. And that uncommonly, you look at his film and you look at the images of Ukraine on the news, and you see a lot of uh, a lot in common there, and a lot in common about the nature of war and 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 all the tragedy that goes with that. So we're going in alphabetical order here. Um, Avatar: The Way of Water from Disney, and we could have a whole separate conversation about Disney, all the changes they're going through. This is a long-awaited film from James Cameron, and and finally there it is. Talk about that one. Well, it's been a long-awaited series of films because James Cameron set about uh, following the success of the 2009 movie Avatar, which, by the way, was nominated for Best Picture also at the Oscars and several and won like three technical awards. Uh, but it has been 13 years uh, before we've gotten the sequel, the first sequel, because this is the... Uh, first of four sequels coming for this movie, or they were hoping to come for this movie, hoping that people remembered the film in big enough numbers, because James Cameron said that this needs to be one of the top four mo grossing movies of all time to break even. That's a tall, uh, wow. tall uh, uh, order to yeah, fill. Okay. And uh, guess what? It is. So <laughs> uh, we are going to get three, four, and five. In fact, um, I was talking to the producer, John Landau, and it's nominated for Best Picture, obviously. He's nominated. And uh, they have already completed a principal photography on, on three, which will be out in two years, and even part of four. All the actors and everybody have read the scripts for all uh, of the four sequels as well. So they know exactly where the story's going and that's interesting. So this is a huge project, but because of the success of this movie, not only at the box office, but here at the Academy Awards as well, um, they are going ahead and Disney is thrilled because they have a new franchise, which basically they bought into because they bought 20th Century Fox, merged it. This, this original movie obviously is 20th Century Fox. And so uh, this joins their uh, Marvel franchise and the Star Wars franchise of George Lucas. And this is very important for Disney. You were talking about Disney. We could go on and on. But uh, at this moment in time, they are thrilled to have Avatar there. And so this huge blockbuster will really help the Oscars, just in interest from the uh, audience. And seeing it in 3D, it's a magnificent movie. It really is beautiful and um uh, you know, obviously people can't get enough of Pandora and the Navi and the whole world that James Cameron created. The guy's a genius. He now will have three of the top four grossing movies of all time. The two Avatars and Titanic, which was just re-released, talking about Best Picture Oscar winners, just re-released in 3D uh, as we speak. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. 
An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce every episode of Story in the Public Square with a talented crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're grateful for the opportunity to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in historic Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who's an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Pete Hammond, a great friend of Story in the Public Square. He's also the awards columnist and chief film critic for the Hollywood publication Deadline. Pete is on Twitter, too, at Deadline Pete, spelled just like it sounds. And so uh, next on our list is The Banshees of Inisherin, which is a, a, about as different from Avatar as we could get, I suppose. Um, uh, but yeah. this, this, this was a powerful story about friendships collapse, but also about undiagnosed mental illness, I think. Oh, yeah. This is um, uh, hard to describe. <laughs> but it is essentially centered on the friendship of uh, two men here in Ireland. And this is a return for Martin McDonough, uh, who wrote and directed it to his Irish roots. He's done three billboards outside of uh, Billings, Montana, and um, yeah, Seven Psychopaths and In Bruges, other movies not set uh, in Ireland, even though he's English, but he, he started out write, writing these Irish stories. This is a return uh, to that area, beautifully made right there on location. And uh, it is about this friendship. Colin Farrell and uh, Brendan Gleeson, longtime friends in this village there, uh, one day, uh, Brendan Gleeson says to Colin Farrell's character, you know, I don't want to be your friend anymore. I don't like you. I don't like you anymore. And it's the, this thing going on between these two. And, um, you know, it's almost very sad to watch it, you know, but and then he he says, stay away from me. And and he, and, and and he says, I don't want don't come near me anymore. And I will cut off my my fingers one at a time unless you listen to me and boy does he do it uh i, I mean i can't think of another plot like that but it is dealing with um mental illness in many ways barry kogan who also is in the movie plays a a, a, a young man in town who is suffering from uh some problems as well and really loves uh um colin farrell's uh sister here, played beautifully by Carrie Condon. All of them have been nominated for Academy Awards, all these actors, and they're all terrific in it. It's got it's got that Martin McDonough touch. You know, he's a great playwright. He's done several plays and things, and he really gets the essence of humanity in in an oddball kind of way, not, not an expected way. And also, this has irresistible donkey named Jenny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I have to say, this has been a great year for donkeys in movies because we not only have Jenny here, we have the star of EO, which is nominated for Best International Film uh, from Poland, which is all about a donkey. We have another Best Picture nominee we'll talk about, Triangle of Sadness, which has a scene involving yeah. a donkey as well. And a wonderful movie that's not nominated for anything from France that I just loved um, uh, that uh, 
called My uh, Donkey, My Lover, and I, which I highly recommend if you can find it. Uh <laughs> it's the year of the donkey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so that brings us to Elvis. And, you know, you were talking about the acting. The acting in Elvis is phenomenal as well with Tom Hanks and especially Austin Butler, who, I mean, he was Elvis. There's just no other way to to describe it. Extraordinary performance and for a relatively young actor. Anyway, talk about Elvis. Yeah, well, Austin Butler seems to be still Elvis because he's still talking like Elvis <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you see him around town. He's a, a very nice guy. Uh, you know, relatively new, like you say. Uh, he was um, uh, one of the Manson clan in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and uh, actually was a a Disney Channel uh, Nickelodeon star, you know, that's how he broke into the business doing those kind of shows like iCarly and things. Uh, he's terrific here. And, you know, want to know something interesting? Elvis Presley was never nominated for an Oscar. Wow. And neither was Marilyn Monroe. And, you know, we have Anna DeArmas nominated for a Marilyn Monroe in Blonde uh, this year. Uh, and uh, Elvis and Marilyn are going to the Oscars for the first time, uh, you know, in a kind of weird way. But uh, the Academy can't resist stories about people like themselves, famous people, uh, people they recognize. And Elvis, uh, coming from the master uh, from Australia, Baz Luhrmann, of course, uh, Moulin Rouge and uh, the Gatsby and uh, the movie Australia and a, a Romeo and Juliet uh, has done all these kind of big scale movies um, that we instantly know what they're about just by the titles. And uh, so we knew this one, Elvis, but he took a different tact and I thought it really worked uh, in making it about Elvis and the story between him and his um, manager, the man who discovered him, Colonel Tom Parker, uh, who was anything but a colonel in real life, uh, but he he took that honorary title from somebody for helping somebody, played by Tom Hanks, who got a lot of criticism for his performance because of his accent, which is kind of a weird accent. But uh, Tom Parker was from the Netherlands and he reinvented himself here. And uh, and if you listen to him at different points in his life, he, he did have those weird accents. I thought Hanks was really terrific in it. I'm on the pro Hanks side here, uh, but he didn't get nominated. Uh, the movie is really well made. They did it again, the pandemic. Talk about a pandemic affecting a movie. Most famously, Tom Hanks had to announce he had COVID, the first celebrity, right? We heard about that. Yeah. Completely shut down this production before it got going. They thought they might not even get it up again. They got it going again uh, and, and got through it. And now here they are, eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Actor. Uh, and I think he's got a good shot here uh, with the in the acting. Let's, let's talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. Speaking of films that are hard to categorize. <laughs> yes, this movie showed up in the spring at South by Southwest Film Festival, which is not considered a launching pad if you want an Oscar-nominated film. Uh, it's more commercial-oriented, and it's earlier in the year. It came in, and critics loved it immediately. It became a surprise hit, a big surprise hit. 
And uh, it, it is a very hard movie to categorize. It, it, in some ways, it looks like a Jackie Chan movie. There's a lot of uh, fighting and different things going on, but it is about family. And it's about this wonderful kind of family dealing with uh, their tax problems and all of that. And the, uh, the person at, at the IRS, uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, got her first Oscar nomination for this too. But this is a primarily uh, Asian cast, all Asian cast, wonderful Michelle Yeoh, uh, and uh, and Ki Hui Kwan, one of the great stories of this Oscar season, he's going to win Best Supporting Actor. He was out of the business in terms of acting after being uh, successful as a 12-year-old in The Goonies and in Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. You know, basically gave it up, got this role years, years, decades later, and look at him now. I mean, all these stories here, Stephanie Shu is nominated as well. Uh, it is uh, a movie that may be not for everybody. They, you know, they may not be able to follow it, but I'll tell you, I saw it in a theater when it came out and the audience was wrapped and it was a mainly a younger audience. It really spoke to them. Dealing with multiverse where they're traveling to different versions of themselves, that's the complication here from a, a couple of directors, young directors, we affectionately call the Daniels because they're both their first names are Daniel, uh, Shineart and Aquan. But it's it's the unique one here, and it is leading in terms of nominations, and uh, many people are favoring it to win. So talk about the Fablemans, a Spielberg film and a, a fictionalized account essentially of, of his uh, childhood and coming of age. Hey, Pete, I'm going to know too that we got five more films to hit in about six minutes. So, we'll do it. <laughs> uh, the Fablemans is Steven Spielberg's movie that he waited his whole life to make. It's his story, even though the names on screen aren't him. Uh, Michelle Williams plays essentially his mother. She's nominated. Uh, it is his most personal film ever. He co-wrote it. First time he's got a writing nomination. He's so proud of that. I talked to him the other day. He said, look at that, I've got a writing nomination. But uh, it really is telling his story uh, growing up in Arizona and uh, wanting to become a filmmaker and how that happened. But it really is about family and diving into the family story. And so it goes in unexpected ways. Uh, and it came out of the gate at the Toronto Film Festival winning that audience award. And uh, it's up for Best Picture and several other Oscars as well. And Steven Spielberg's no stranger to Oscars. He already has three. Yeah. But uh, maybe he'll get another one. Who knows? You know, the, all of these films had such real emotional impact for me. One that I was surprised by was Tar. Uh, a yeah. deep dive into the world of Philharmonics. Right. Uh, Lydia Tar. You know, this is such a character-driven movie for Kate Blanchett who's just impossible to give a bad performance as anything, but she just dominates this, this Lydia Tarr, this uber successful um, uh, conductor and uh, composer, and she just has the world until she runs into cancel culture and uh, gets in trouble. And this is really about her downfall, as it were. And it brought Todd Field back, uh, you might know, in the bedroom, uh, movies like Little Children. Uh, but that was 16 years ago, his last movie. And he came back and it's taken all this time. And Tar has won several critics groups awards for best picture. Uh, it is um, not a success at the box office, but definitely one. I, I would say Kate Blanchett's a front runner uh, in actress for this. So Top Gun Maverick saw this in a theater and 
literally was blown away. I mean, it, it was just an exciting film. The cinematography was amazing. Tell us about Top Gun you know, Maverick. You know, Pete, we both were saying, we went back to the movies for the first time to see Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. First yeah. time back in the theater. <laughs> so, and that's what I told you at the top of this, that th this has saved Hollywood <laughs> and theaters, because you are a prime example of that. But 36 years later, after the first Top Gun movie, there's only been one previous Top Gun movie with Tom Cruise. He revisits his character. Along the way, they wanted to do it, you know, and it never happened and all of that. It just came together. But what it has is emotion, a strong emotional hook. Val Kilmer, uh, despite his cancer and unable to really talk, right. is back in it as well uh, in, in a very poignant scene. But the action... The, the way this movie has uh, improved the technology from 36 years ago with Top Gun, the story, no one was expecting it to be like this, to be a Best Picture nominee. In fact, Jerry Bruckheimer, who's produced blockbuster after blockbuster, is going to the Oscars for the first time. This is his first nomination super. as a producer. Unbelievable. That's super. All right, so Triangle of Sadness, I told my wife and I watched this, and I described this as Lord of the Flies meets Below Deck. <laughs> it is. I saw this in Can in Cannes. It was uh, premiered in Cannes in May. And I I got to tell you, I have never laughed so much in a theater in a long time <laughs> at certain scenes. There's a scene on a boat in the middle of a storm where all the people in this fancy restaurant get very sick, shall we say, that's right out of Monty Python. But the tone of the movie goes from kind of a satire about the modeling industry uh, to this very rich yacht with all these people to a desert island with these survivors, basically. And the tables turned in terms of class. The toilet manager in this movie <laughs> becomes key. <laughs> That's all I can say. The wonderful Dolly Deleon here steals it, but uh, it is uh, Ruben uh, uh, Oslin who uh, uh, did uh, Force Majeure and uh, The Square uh, is making his English language debut. He's Swedish, and I really think he did great. When I when I wrote about it, I said Billy Wilder would have loved this movie. The the sat the satirical level of it is unmatched. I'm happy to see it among the group here. And so the last one is Women Talking. Briefly, give us that take. Give us your well, take. Well, I think the title says it all. It is Women <laughs> Talking, uh, and. Uh, I thought it was magnificent. Sarah Pauly uh, wrote and directed it. It's about a group of Mennonite women uh, set in around 2010. Uh, there's been a sexual um, uh, act of sexual violence um, against uh, um, uh, them. And uh, the men have left to actually go take care of the guy and protect the guy are the guys that did it. It's based on a true story that happened in Bolivia, but um, uh, it's taken to a further degree, these women meet in a barn and decide, will they stay, will they go, will they fight? What will they do together as a unit? And it really deals with a lot of interesting issues and magnificent ensemble cast here. And it was uh, produced as well as uh, has a, a, a featured role in it for Frances McDormand. Um, who's up for an Oscar here as Best Picture. This movie, Women Talking, you know, the title really, like I said, says it all. It's uh, it, Pete, we could talk to you for another 30 minutes or three days about this stuff. We want to okay, know. Okay, let's do it. I know, right? <laughs> uh, the, the Academy Awards will broadcast March 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on ABC. But that's all the time we have this week. 
Pete, thank you so much for being with us. You can find him in Deadline regularly. But if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us at PellCenter.org, where you can follow us uh, on social media. I'm Jim. That's Wayne. We'll look forward to seeing you again next time for more Story in the Public Square.